If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn again to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We're continuing uh, in this series called uh, Portraits of the Faith or Family Portraits, looking at the photo album of God's people. And we're, we're nearing the end of the chapter. We've got a, you know, a handful of weeks left in the series. Uh, and uh, you'll, you'll begin to see that uh, after today, the stories start to speed up a little bit. We, we skip over a lot of time and cover a whole bunch of ground each and every for each and every portrait. But for today, we're going to zoom in once again on one individual in particular. We're going to look at Moses today. And so if you would look at uh, Moses and his parents, really, his whole family. And so if you'll look there at verse, starting at verse 23, I'm going to read to 27 in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses' parents uh, hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace... For the sake of Christ, as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's edict or the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was and is invisible. This is God's word. Moses and his parents. Uh, I think it's a portrait of uh, maybe more than some of the others we've seen. It shows the heroic character of the people in this chapter. Uh, I've tried to stay away from the normal way of describing the chapter. that This is the hall of faith. Uh, Because I I think the family photo album is a better picture. The hall of faith suggests that these are the people that we we can never imitate. They're just way too high for us. But in the case of Moses and his parents, I think we see maybe a... One of the most heroic stories, maybe one of the ones that's most justified to call the Hall of Faith, and, and one that to try to imitate them is definitely to reach beyond our grasp. Because they're doing something here that I think a lot of us can relate to in our own family photo albums. Uh, that They're doing something great in the midst of amazing cost to themselves. They're doing something great for their family and other people in the midst of a high cost to themselves. I remember as a kid, I told you all about this at the beginning of the series, I would sit often with Meemaw looking at our family photo albums and sometimes with my, my grandma as well. And in both sides of the family, in the family photo albums, there were pictures of my grandfathers, both of them, in their army uniforms. And, uh, you know, I, I thought of that as that they were heroes to me. Uh, my papa, which was my Meemaw's husband, whom I didn't know, uh, served in the army during World War II, right in the middle of of the war. Uh, My papa, who I did know, was my grandma's husband, my dad's father. He served shortly after World War II over in Germany in the part of the cleanup process after the war. But, But me as a little boy watching those pictures of them in uniform and having my Meemaw and my grandma just beam with pride, as they talked about those young men who, who marched off and went off to very dangerous situations, not just for the family, but for the whole country. I remember it just swelled my heart with pride. It made me think about, okay, what am I going to do in my generation and in my life that's going to be at least maybe even a fraction as heroic? And I'm not sure that I've, 
attain that, but uh, nevertheless, that, that, that came into my heart, uh, even as a boy, as I saw those photos. Moses and his parents are kind of like that. They're the people of God in uniform. Because they were called to live during one of the most difficult time periods of any time period that God's people have ever been called to live in, during the time of slavery in Egypt. The whole people of God, the whole of Israel was enslaved to the most powerful nation in the world. Under the control of the most powerful man in the world at the time, Pharaoh. And in the midst of that oppression, God came to Moses' parents and he came to Moses and he says, I want you to follow me. And in both cases, I'm sure we, we know with Moses, we read about it earlier, he kind of balked a little bit. Are you sure, Lord? Are you sure you want me to withstand him, Pharaoh? And I'm sure, we don't, we don't know this, but I'm sure his parents also balked a little bit. And yet, they were willing to bear whatever the cost, whatever cost it took to truly follow God and live out their faith publicly in their lives. I want to show you this morning, that's true of every Christian. The, 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 her, the heroism that we see in these two stories, in the story of Moses' parents and of Moses, just like the heroism that I saw in my papa and in my papa, is not an unattainable thing. It's something that you and I ought to reach for and grasp for in our own lives, even though it admittedly would be reaching beyond what we think is our ability to grasp. But guess what? It, it felt that way to Moses too. It felt that way to Moses' parents too. And so let's look this morning. If you'll look in your bulletin, I want to talk to you about the cost of faith today. First of all, I want to talk to you about uh, that it is costly. I just want to make the point that we often don't understand that faith is supposed to be costly. We just don't often see that. Then secondly, I want to show you maybe a couple of different sources of the costliness. Like why is faith so hard? Uh, in our daily lives, and we'll, we'll learn a lot from the, the experience of Moses' family. And then lastly, I want you to see faith sight. Uh, the, the special seeing ability that faith has that helps us bear the cost. All right? The cost, where it comes from, and then kind of how to bear it is what we're going to look at today. Uh, first of all, faith is costly. Uh, we often misunderstand faith completely. Think about that. We misunderstand it. Faith is a word that's thrown around a lot. People think uh, about wanting to have a life of faith all the time. Uh, most people do, I think, at least in my experience. Uh, even people who aren't Christians or don't know, regard, you know, Jesus or the Bible, they, they at least are looking for some kind of way to fill a, a void spiritually in their lives. They're looking for some type of faith. But most of the time, when we think about faith or when we reach for it and try to grasp it, we're thinking, honestly, completely backwards. Because we assume that faith is supposed to be easy. Don't we? Don't we assume that faith is supposed to be something that comes to us kind of naturally? And yet, look at the examples here. Look at Moses. Look at his parents. Uh, Moses' parents had to disobey Pharaoh... Right? Remember, Pharaoh had made this awful decree, this, this edict that the Bible talks about, that said every male boy born of a Hebrew family had to be surrendered for death. It was a state-sanctioned infanticide. Right? A state-sanctioned infanticide, the killing of babies, that Pharaoh was pressing on people. And of course, that's, I mean, that is completely against the nature of any parent, don't you agree? An edict like that is absolutely unthinkable for any parent, anywhere, anytime. 
And yet, wouldn't it have been a little difficult for Moses' parents and many other Hebrews who probably did similar things that they did to resist the edict by hiding the babies, by refusing to kill? Maybe some of the, the parents dressed their boy children up as girl children. <laughs> they, they probably thought of all different kinds of ways to get around the edict. But it took a tremendous amount of bravery to do it. And yet they did it. Why? Not because just simply the parental instinct. Not simply because of that. They did it because they knew it was what God was calling them to do. They knew human life was made by God, not by people. And so therefore people can't pass laws justly that take away human life unjustly, right? That's, that's a simple idea to them. They embraced that because they embraced the great I am, the God, the creator of all life. And so they, they, they resolved in their hearts to bear the cost of resisting what Pharaoh had said. Now Moses also had to resist Pharaoh. We know the famous story. Uh, Let my people go, Pharaoh. And uh, you know, how did Pharaoh take that message from Moses? Did he take it you know, positively? Was he excited to see his long-lost stepson come back with that message? Not at all. But Hebrews doesn't even focus on that. Hebrews focuses on the fact that Moses, long before he came to Moses to, to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, he decided that he was not going to live in pleasure in the palace, which is what he could have done. Instead, he traded that pleasure in for a life of hardship going to bat for God's people. Isn't that amazing? Didn't that carry such a huge cost? Well, y'all... The Bible is so clear. I mean, there's not much that the Bible is clearer about than the fact that that right there is going to be the experience of every single believer in their life some way, somehow. Some way, somehow. Jesus' words, uh, Mark chapter 11. If anyone, anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Notice he doesn't say, whoever wants to be my disciple needs to take up the crown and follow me, right? <laughs> he says, take up the cross and follow me. The cross was torture. The cross was execution. The cross was suffering. And Jesus says, anyone who would be my disciple has to do that. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, just in an offhanded comment. It's not the main point of his letter, but he just says it as if everybody should know it. God has destined us to suffer for Jesus, he says. He's destined us for it. In the same way that God has destined believers for belief in Jesus and love for Jesus, God has also destined us to suffer along with Jesus. Well, that's his two places. You can find it in every story, in every nook and cranny of the Bible. When God calls us, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls us, he bids us come and die. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the man who suffered in a Nazi concentration camp for his resistance to Hitler as a pastor in Germany. When Jesus calls us, he bids us come and to die. This is extraordinarily important to get. Because isn't it true that expectations are important, right expectations? Um, you know, there's probably a lot of people who signed up, like thinking about my grandfather, my, both my grandfathers in the army. I remember there was a time when I was a senior that I, I wanted to sign up to become an army person, uh, a soldier, and I didn't. 
just at the last minute. But I'm sure many people uh, signed up and didn't make it all the way into full enlisting. Why? There's this little thing called boot camp, right, that happens. There's a little thing called getting you ready to become a soldier, breaking you down so as to build you back up from a new foundation. And that, that part trips people up because people come in thinking, oh, yeah, army, my grandfather did it, my father did it, I should be able to do it. It's easy. And you get in there, and boot camp, after all, the reason they make it so hard is because it's actually the least of your worries, or should be if you're becoming a soldier, because soldiers live dangerous lives, right? Boot camp is just a small taste to get you ready for the more dangerous life that's coming afterwards. But if you come into that thinking, this is going to be easy, it's just going to be handed to me, my uniform is just going to be given to me without earning it, without any sweat equity, you are probably not going to make it through. And that's true of every, pretty much everything that you sign up for in life, pretty much. You got to have a right expectation or you're going to end up running into the rocks of disappointment. Faith in Jesus is the same way. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. Count the cost. Get your expectations right. When I call a person, I call a person to come and die. Faith is costly. We tend to not think it is. Either we think faith, well, faith is just for those super spiritual people out there. And you, and you would think, okay, well, if you think that, then you really know faith is costly. No, you're twisting it. Because if you think faith is just for the super spiritual, the holy rollers of the world, and it's not for you, guess what you're doing? You're assuming that faith and the call to faith doesn't apply to you at all. It just applies to those people. Right? And even, even though Jesus says, anyone, whoever would come after me, anybody who wants to do that can do it if they renounce everything. Take up the cross and follow me. Another way that we think about it, the opposite way that we get faith wrong is we, we think faith ought to be just natural. And it is, we think it is natural. Like everybody's got it. Uh, everybody has true faith, that is. I mean, it, there is a way in which everybody has some kind of faith. But a true faith is not natural at all. In fact, nobody's born with it. Nobody. It's so counter nature. It's so against our natural way to live to deny myself and to follow Jesus and take up my cross. Faith is not just for the super spiritual. Jesus says whoever will should come. But faith is also not just a natural thing that you're born with. It's something that you have to deny yourself, repent, turn away from life your way in order to embrace. That's the reason why faith is so difficult. Don't be discouraged this morning. I want to talk to you if you're a Christian and you know that you have faith, but yet sometimes you wonder, do I really have faith? Because if I did, why would it be so hard? Well, why would I stumble so much? Why would I have such a struggle? Guess what? That's a pretty good indication you do have faith. I want to encourage you with that. You know you have faith if it's a struggle. If it's not a struggle, you may think you have faith. But you might not. Remember I said there were four quadrants of faith? You know you've got it. You know you don't have it. You don't know you got it. And you don't know you don't have it. Well, the don't know you don't have it is the most dangerous one to be in because you don't know you don't have it. Well, here's one way that you could shake yourself out of that stupor that you're in if you're in that category. And you don't know you're in that category if you're in it. 
So I think everybody needs to apply this to themselves to figure out whether they're in it. Does my faith cost me anything? Has it cost me anything? That's a question to ask yourself that might shake you out of spiritual stupor. Because if your faith has never cost you a thing, if your faith is not currently costing you anything dear to you, it's not faith according to Jesus. If following God has never meant that you've had to do something costly, something painful for him, you're not following God. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the first thing. We can't misunderstand faith. There is a cost to it. Moses and his parents are great examples. They had to do something extraordinarily heroic. Now, secondly, why is faith costly specifically? Like, talk to, I mean, some of y'all might be thinking, okay, you're asking me, has faith cost me anything? Well, what, what kind of cost do you mean? Well, here's some examples from the lives of Moses' parents and Moses. Uh, here we could talk about, I mean, literally thousands of different ways that faith is costly for individuals. In this room, those who have faith and those watching in who have faith could tell a different story of how faith has been costly to them. My story is going to vary from yours and, you know, Bob's is going to vary from Ben's and et cetera, et cetera. But here, I the reason I love how Hebrews works with Moses and his parents is uh, the writer here is showing us the two biggest categories of struggle, the two most, you know, all-encompassing sources of cost that, that catch all of us in its net. Every single one of us face this. And it really represents the two main strategies of the enemy of faith against people who have faith. First of all, let me just stop there. Do you know there's an enemy of faith? Do you know that this morning? Do you believe it? Uh, I know it is not popular to believe and talk about the devil, but the devil, according to the Bible, is real. He's a real being uh, who really does hate God and really does hate God's people. And he really has actual strategies for trying to defeat God's purposes in the world. He does it out of jealousy. He does it out of envy. The Bible gives us some clues into, into that throughout the, the whole thing. Not only that, but uh, the world is in cahoots with him. And guess what? You, like you apart from Jesus, your flesh, your sin nature is also in cahoots with him. So it's a crazy thing. I mean, you want to talk about conspiracy theories? <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't like conspiracy theories most of the time, but this is one that the Bible endorses, that the powers that be in the world um, are influenced by a greater power that is of darkness. And Jesus came to the world, the Bible says, to destroy the works of the devil. Well, guess what? Um, Satan has certain tried and true strategies that he uses. Uh, I enjoyed last week, maybe you did too, watching the NCAA tournament. Isn't it fun to watch March Madness? One of my favorite things is the strategy of the coaches. I feel like the the coaching and the, the play calling in college basketball is just so fascinating. Uh, when a team is down at halftime, most always when they come out of the locker room, you'll see a new defense, uh, a, new, a new set of plays that they're running, trying to figure out a new angle. And I just love watching that. Uh, I was a basketball player myself, and I just enjoy seeing how it works with people that are actually good at it, uh, you know, a little bit better than I was, right? 
Well, Satan has this sort of one-two punch that he uses. When one's not working, he always goes to the other. When the other's not working, he goes back to one. It's like man-to-man and zone. And Moses and his parents represent it. Look at, first of all, at Moses' parents. The first strategy is used against them. And it's the strategy of pressure. Okay? You might want to write that down. A strategy of pressure. External pressure is often placed on believers by the world, by Satan, right? All in league with Satan, to try to squeeze faith out of his people by force. Uh, This is when the edicts of the king, you know, for example here, the edict of Pharaoh goes against the commandments of God. There's a strategy of Satan in that every time it happens. He is using the the levers of power, whether it's money or whether it's politics or whatever it is, he's using those levers to try to, to, to snuff out the faith of the family of God. That's what he did with Moses and his parents. If, if, I, if I force God's people to kill all their firstborn children, their firstborn sons, I'll have them. There's no way God will be able to continue his purpose of crushing my head, Satan says, if I get him there. If I try to take away the things most precious to them by, by, by putting them in a position where they can't but choose murder because the king, the, the, their, their slave master is, is commanding them to choose murder. You see, that's the strategy of pressure. That strategy happens in so many different ways in our lives. Uh, it's not always coming from government. In fact, most of the time it's not coming from government. Most of the time it comes in other ways. Uh, You can be under pressure by friends and family members to not follow Jesus, right? Your friends, your family members who don't follow Jesus sometimes can. And I'm not saying that they become Satan, but they, they can serve his purpose as well. When they mock you, ridicule you. Uh, maybe it can be parents for, to children. It can be children to parents when they get older. It can be spouse against spouse trying to squeeze you into their mold and out of God's mold. It can be a boss at work. It can be pe- people working together on the same team at work. It can be even neighbors in a neighborhood. And yes, sometimes it also can be government. It can be people who are in power. Squeezing the life out of faith the turning of the screw that has been one of satan's favorite plays to play against god's people i don't have time to go through the whole bible but i could and i could show you one after the other satan turning the screws turning the screws turning the screws the book of revelation tells us he's going to keep doing that to the very end it makes no mistake about it the whole idea of the beast and the mark of the beast you've probably heard about that um that's kind of a mysterious thing not kind of it is a mysterious thing but The main point of it is Satan is once again at the end of times turning the screws on God's people. He's using a beast. He's using something powerful to try to get faith out of them. But then notice the second strategy against Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, verse 24, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's what he was, by the way. If you don't know his story, he was saved by his parents, put in a little basket in the river, and guess who picked him up? Pharaoh's own daughter and 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 she took him in she had more compassion than her father did apparently to save a Hebrew child and Moses was raised as if he were an Egyptian royal family member he he was raised as an Egyptian prince a prince of Egypt as the movie tells us right 
And so Moses had a whole different set of temptations. His parents were being squeezed as slaves in the hand of a slave master. Moses was being rocked to sleep by Satan. <laughs> the pleasures, it says, of Egypt, the, the, the joys of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the fleeting pleasures of sin, the treasures of the Egyptian royal family. Those are the things that the writer of Hebrews lists as the source of temptation that Moses had to face. You see, when Satan can't get us by pressure, he gets us by pleasure. You got that? Pressure and pleasure. Those are his one-two punch, always and forever. And so in the book of Revelation, when it describes the beast coming out, and the beast is like crushing God's people, and yet God's people stand up under the, uh, uh, you know, stand up on the foundation of their faith, even in the midst of that pressure, he sends the false prophet after it, if you read Revelation. And then he sends the prostitute named Babylon. And in both cases, the false prophet is deceptive. The, the prostitute is seductive. Satan, when man-to-man when -man doesn't work, he goes to zone. Well, when he can't squeeze the life out of us by pressure, he seduces us. Isn't it better, he might say, to live your way instead of God's way? Doesn't it lead to more immediate gratification? And y'all, the answer usually always is yes. I mean, am I allowed to say that in church? Because it's the truth. I mean, after all, it's not just me. It's the Bible says sin has a pleasure. Sin does. Disobeying God has a pleasure. But notice that pleasure is fleeting. But yet it comes pretty quick, doesn't it? The pleasure is immediate. The pleasures of God are eternal, but they're not immediate. The pleasures of God take a long time to stew and cook, a long time to germinate and, and grow to full fruit and full flower. The pleasures of sin, you can get it right now, as quick as you want it, but it's always got diminishing returns. The more you experience it, the less pleasurable it is, and yet the more you, more you are hooked to it. And so you, you're, you're an addict, basically, to sin. That's the way sin works. It works like an addiction. It gives you a hit, but then you got to go back again and again. And the more you go back, the less of a hit you get, so the more you have to take. Moses was under, under that kind of temptation. What an amazing, heroic thing it was. I mean, think about it this morning. How, how heroic was it that Moses said no to the pleasures of royalty? To follow Jesus. I don't think anybody in this room is being tempted by royal status. <laughs> if you are, let me know, because, yeah, I want to, you know, that, that might be a good thing. I don't think that's the case, though. But all of us are always being tempted by pleasure in some way. And it is so subtle. I, I, I think it's more, it's more effective often than the pressure side. Because the pressure side, there, there's a natural like uh, stubbornness in us that when something pressures us, we want to do the opposite. And so when Satan comes against us with pressure, I mean, we bow up. Even just not speaking in terms of faith, just as humans, we bow up under that. We don't want anybody telling us what to do and forcing us to do what we don't want to do. But pleasure, oh man, it's, it's, it sings the sweet song of our native tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> it's exactly what we want. To be comfortable. Sometimes it's as simple as that. I mean, we're in Mulberry. I mean, Mulberry is not typically the, you know, the kind of community here. Even in Polk County, it's not the kind of community where people are chasing the, their name in lights and you know, big, 
huge thing. I mean, this is not the place for that. But this is a place where people are chasing comfort. They're chasing security. Uh, they're chasing enough money to where they don't have to worry anymore. They're chasing that perfect life, you know, the Instagrammable way of living with, with a couple chickens and a little bit of acreage, acreage and a fence around the house and 2.5 kids and a, a nice dog that gets the paper for you and all that kind of stuff. Well, he doesn't get the paper anymore because nobody gets it anymore. But <laughs> anyway, the dog does something. He fetches something for you today. That's what we want. It's comfort. It's ease. Listen, none of that's evil. Uh, royalty wasn't evil. Uh, the treasures of Egypt weren't necessarily evil, but they would have been evil had they kept Moses from doing what God told him to do. Wouldn't they? And they're just as evil today if they keep us from doing what God has told us to do. So I wonder, where have you experienced Satan's man-to-man defense? His pressure in your life? Where are you experiencing it right now? Are you making any halftime adjustments? Some of y'all need to make halftime adjustments. I'm not speaking directly to any individual, but I just know the way spiritual life ebbs and flows. The law of averages is somebody in here is getting their rear handed to them by Satan right now. Somewhere in your life. I might not even know it, but you know it. God knows it. Satan knows it. You need to make some halftime adjustments. He's coming against you with pressure. Same thing on the other side. Some of you are being lulled to sleep. Maybe you already are dead asleep spiritually because of the seduction of pressure, of pleasure. Are you making any halftime adjustments? Or are you just going to sail on into the night, sleeping away? It's important, isn't it? To look at our family photo album and to see in uniform, as it were, Moses, who stood up, who resisted. Moses' parents, who were heroic and resisted even Pharaoh's word. All right, that's the second thing. The cost and the sources of the cost. But let's look finally at the side of faith. The way that faith helps us to bear the cost. I want you to notice there in Hebrews, if you'll look at it again. Similar uh, description is used about um, Moses' parents and Moses in terms of how they faced uh, Satan's attempts to overthrow their faith. Uh, look what it says again in verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because, why? Why did they hide him? Because they, what's the word? Saw. Because they saw that he was no ordinary child. Okay, keep that in your mind, log that away. Uh, then verse 24, 25 and 26 and 27. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because, because why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's edict or the king's anger. He persevered because, why? He saw him who is unseeable, him who is invisible. Did you notice the same pattern there? The parents did something by faith even when it was costly because they saw something by faith that they couldn't ordinarily see without faith. 
Moses, same thing, did something costly by faith because he was looking ahead and seeing something that he wouldn't normally be able to look ahead and see without faith. Here, here's the, the lesson for us. Faith is the opposite of sight. We hear that all the time, right? You either have faith, you live by faith, or you live by sight. But here's the critical thing that we miss sometimes. Faith gives you a truer, better sense of sight. Hmm? Think about that. Faith is the opposite of sight, but faith helps you see things so much better. You say, how? Because faith sees what God says. Faith sees what God says, and it sees it as if it were just as real as the things that you see with your physical eyes. Okay? It, it, faith makes the promises of God sort of materialize to you. It makes them seem really, really real, and you begin to look at all of your life in light of the things that God has promised and the things that God has said. And in doing that, it helps you be prepared to bear the cost. Just like we were talking about with boot camp or, you know, I think about when I was playing basketball as a, as a high schooler. And every year in the offseason, we had to do the awful thing called conditioning. That was just an awful time, you know. Uh, folks were doubled over, you know, throwing up after practice. Because why? Because they had not spent time pre-conditioning before they started conditioning. They, they had gotten a little bit flabby, you know, in the offseason. And it was time for the coach to whip us into shape. The only reason, I mean, a lot of people quit during conditioning period, didn't even make it because they didn't want to make it. The people who made it were the people who were able to see things that were invisible, right? They saw what they couldn't see, if you're following me. They saw themselves on the team competing, winning games, scoring points, getting the applause and praise of all the girls. They, they, they saw all the things that they were wanting from being on the basketball team, and so they endured through something difficult. That was Moses. That was Moses' parents. They knew how to exercise their faith. Do you? They knew how to exercise it by... Looking ahead to things that were not able to be looked at. Not able yet to be seen. But faith does that. Faith has this uncanny ability to see the invisible as if it were visible. That makes sense. I mean, think about it. If you are not in a regular practice of exercising your faith, when Satan's pressures and Satan's pleasures come in, you are not going to be ready. You're not. I'm not going to be ready. You say, well, how do I exercise? Same way they did. They heard what God said, and they saw it. And they began to look at their lives in line of it. You say, well, I have never heard God speak. Hogwash. <laughs> uh, we have heard God speak in a far, far clearer and more potent way than they ever did. You say, well, how do you figure that? It's written down. Uh, did you know when Moses lived, not a single word of the Bible had been written? You say, well, how's that? Because he was the first one to write it. They just heard it. That's, that's a lot. Isn't it, more, isn't it better when you get something in writing than when you don't have it in writing? Because you know what is in writing. It ain't changing. It's staying the same. As it was in the beginning, is now, ever shall be, world without end. And God has given us his word in that form. Not only that, but we have his word completed, fulfilled. We got Jesus. 
at the end of the story, showing us what Moses was all about to begin with. Because Moses gave up the pleasures of Egypt, but guess what? Jesus gave up the pleasures of heaven. Is heaven better than Egypt? Are the treasures of God and the pleasures of God better than the pleasures of royalty in Egypt? And Jesus gave those up and went willingly into suffering for every single one of his people to show us that the way of the cross is the way to get the crown. But you got to get the cross first. You got to follow him into the cross. It's his cross that enables us to be cleansed and, and, and healed and forgiven. And it's his cross that shows us the way to obey God even when it costs us something near and dear to us. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. I love what Jesus says uh, in, in John chapter 5. He says, if you believed in Moses, talking to the Pharisees, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. I love that. Moses wrote about me. And that's why I'm saying to you, you've got some, a better word from the Lord than Moses did. Moses wrote about Jesus. You've got what Moses wrote and much more besides, all telling you about your Savior if you'll listen to it. And so the way to exercise your faith is to look into the Bible and to see what God says. Look into the Bible and see what God says. That requires discipline. It requires, uh, it requires it to be a priority in your life. It requires some kind of hunger and thirst to hear from the Lord. That you've, If you don't have it, you've got to ask God to give it to you. A hunger and a thirst for him. But then it also requires us to look through his word at all the circumstances of our lives. You look into the Bible, but you also look through it. You see what I'm saying by that? You look into it, you see what God says, but then you see everything else in the light of what God has said. And it begins to transform the way you view the normal circumstances of your life. It begins to show you when pressure is starting to squeeze you. It shows you when pleasures are seducing you away from God. And it gives you the strength to bear the cost every day that God is calling you to bear. Let me leave you this morning by reading from another New Testament book. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And just listen to what Paul says. He is doing exactly what Moses did. What Moses' parents did. And, and y'all, what you and I can do today. Listen to what he says. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Amen. <laughs> Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is not seen. Not on what is seen. Since what is seen is just temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Eternal. 